Hi, I'm Siobhan Hunt and this is Kindling Conversation, a Kindling Kids radio podcast. Just a quick note before we get into the next episode. If you haven't already, I'd love you to rate and review Kindling Conversation wherever you get your podcasts, or if you enjoy the episode, share it with your friends. All right, thank you, and on with the show. If you have a child with additional needs, chances are you've dealt with the National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS. The whole thing can be overwhelming and confusing if you're not familiar with the whole uh, process. If you manage to figure it out, however, the NDIS can have huge and lasting impacts on your child and you as a parent. Joining us to try and detangle some of the more complicated parts of the NDIS is Joanne Hewitt, the Executive Director of Disability from the Benevolent Society. Hi, Joanne. How are you? Hi, I'm great. It's great to be here. Now, I mentioned there that applying for the NDIS can be overwhelming and and a bit confusing. Like many things when you're applying for assistance, um, it can feel like a lot of effort. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Look, I think it's really important to remember that the NDIS is probably the biggest reform we've had in Australia since Medicare. It's huge. And of course, in any big reform, there's going to be teething problems in setting things up. And I think what people have experienced recently is that there've been changes in the way, uh, you know, intakes happen. There's been some changes in uh, how they work out eligibility and things like that. And that's really, unfortunately, caused a lot of stress for some people. Having said that, there are many, many, many people who are in the NDIS, have had a seamless transition into the NDIS and are really, really happy. So really important to remember that, that it's, you, you shouldn't go into it feeling anxious because it, it um, in theory, should, should work properly. <laughs> Let's talk about who's eligible for the NDIS. Let's say um, you discover that your three-year-old is on the autism spectrum, Mm. which itself can be quite a process, uh, or you're given uh, some kind of um, diagnosis for a, a neurological special need that your child has. A lot of parents, I find, um, when that happens, their first impact is trying to get their head around what their child will need to deal with and then what supports they need. How do they know whether they're eligible for support from the government in the supports they can give their kids? Yeah, look, the only way you can know is to test it out. And I guess to start with, you know, I I certainly understand that any diagnosis is a really confusing time. Um, I actually have two kids who are on the spectrum. They're adults now. And, uh, you know, I remember well when they were diagnosed and I searched for information and services. Unfortunately, we didn't have the NDIS at that time. So, uh, you know, we had to scramble around and pay for most of the things that we got. So I certainly understand the anxiety that is behind that. Part of the anxiety, too, is that particularly with a condition like autism, you really have no idea how that child's going to develop over time. But the key is early intervention. Intervention. So, of course, that's a critical part of actually uh, the first thing you need to get in place is good early intervention services. The NDIS can seem a little confusing because there are two levels of criteria. So to join the scheme and be a lifelong participant, you must demonstrate that you have a significant lifelong disability that requires substantial support. Now, when your uh, child 
say, for example, your example of a three-year-old who's been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder, we can't know at that point whether that child is going to need substantial support throughout their life. Many, many kids who are diagnosed with autism, even children who aren't talking at the right ages and are fail, significantly failing to meet milestones, many children improve particularly with uh, early intervention. doesn't mean they're cured. Uh, we have a little, it might sound awful, but we have a little joke in our family with our boys that, uh, you know, they're really doing very well. And uh, most of the time you don't think about the fact that they have an autism spectrum disorder. But from time to time we have a little joke about, well, they're not actually cured. Uh, so it's not saying that, that, people, um, that people actually lose their disability. But um, what it means is that over time some children and adults can be supported by mainstream community services. And so therefore to demonstrate eligibility for the lifelong scheme, you must demonstrate that you have a disability that's going to require that substantial support over time. The rules, though, are different for little children, so children zero to six. And that's to make sure that kids do get the early intervention that they require, that it's not reliant upon them demonstrating that they're going to need it for the rest of their lives. I think sometimes that's a little confusing and and also anxiety-ridden for families because they think, oh, well, I've only got this till I'm six. What do I do when the child's six? For, to demonstrate that your child um, is eligible for the NDIS, you need to demonstrate that the child has a either a diagnosed condition, so autism is one of those diagnosed conditions, or a developmental delay of some sort. And that's usually done by a paediatrician uh, or a therapist, so an occupational therapist, psychologist or, or um, a speech pathologist who might be working with that child. The only way to know whether you're eligible is to test it out. So it's really a question of going through the process with um, an early childhood partner, an early intervention partner, and their um, early intervention specialists who are funded by the, the government to actually do that early exploration about what, uh, whether that child's eligible for a start, what services they might need, and if they're not eligible, what services can we put in place for that child to ensure that they're still getting the support that they need. Now, this is what the Benevolent Society does, isn't it? So if we can talk about it in a, a kind of a real-world scenario, because I think that helps people, um, let's say someone heard you say that and went, right, I need to talk to the Benevolent Society. I need to understand how to navigate this process. What do they do? Okay, well, just to clarify, the Benevolent Society is not an early intervention partner. And the, the best port of call when you first uh, are looking at the NDIS is to contact, if, if your child is under the age of six, is to contact an early intervention partner. And once again, your paediatrician, your GP um, or your... Um, uh, OT or, or PT, uh, PT or SP, so all those, <laughs> all those, acronyms. <laughs> all those acronyms, your therapist, um, should be the one that's able to support you to find out who that early intervention partner. So Benevolent Society is not. Okay. And there's a list of those partners actually on the NDIS website and you can go in. It's a very accessible, very user-friendly website. So that's um, www.ndis.gov.au. If you type in NDIS into Google comes up straight away. Really easy to find. 
And you can actually go in and find out who an early intervention partner is in your region because they are different from region to region. How the Benevolent Society can help is that, you know, we certainly do assist people to navigate the system. So if you are eligible and you have a plan, certainly we can provide a whole range of services uh, to people, whether they're at, at all ages. Uh, we have a, a um, team of specialist uh, service providers, so therapists, case managers, behaviour support practitioners, and f- particularly for little kids with autism, that's some um, something that, you know, setting up kids to actually understand how they relate to other people, for parents to understand how best to support their child um, to behave in a way that's socially acceptable is really important. And so that's the kind of intervention that we can actually assist with. We do have a call centre, so when people ring, we can actually assist them to know which, you know, where to go. Uh, We might not necessarily be able to do the planning or the setup, but we can certainly help people find out where to go. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Joanne Hewitt. She's the Executive Director of Disability at the Benevolent Society. We're talking about the NDIS and uh, up to this point we've been looking at um, who can access the NDIS and how you might start the process and as Joanne was just saying you need to find an early intervention um, now I've forgotten the name partner but well, that you, was easy. <laughs> you don't necessarily need to find that person so if you talk to your GP or your pediatrician um, or, or the person that's supporting you, so it may well be a therapist, then they should be able to link you and refer you to that early intervention partner. So let's not feel like everybody has to find these things themselves. Okay, so uh, ask the person who's, who's, uh, supporting, who's so- supporting you, and particularly you. the person who's made that diagnosis, because the people who make those diagnoses um, really should be in touch with who next, what the next port of call is. So, okay, so then you start navigating um, the scheme. Are there any key questions that parents should be asking along the way? You know, you get those key questions in all, all parts of your life when you're going to buy a house, when you're opening a bank account, uh, when you start, your kids start school. What do you think are the key questions when, a, when someone starts to look at the NDI scheme that they should be asking? The first key thing to do is to make sure that you've got what they require is evidence about the eligibility. That can seem a bit scary. And I think that's where people do start getting anxious, saying, well, what evidence do I need? And evidence includes things like reports from your doctor, reports from your um, paediatrician, reports from your preschool that actually uh, talk about the support that child needs. Um, so it, it sounds really scary, but it's not necessarily. So you, you, the people around you, and you don't have to have 50,000 of them. It's really just the people who know your child best or who have undertaken those clinical diagnoses. Uh, the second thing is to think about the support that you require, that your child requires. And that's really based on you know, where the child, in comparison to their peers, so in comparison to other children who are at the same age or developmental stage, in comparison to what they're achieving, what is it that your child needs in order to catch up or in order to actually live a decent life? Some kids are not going to catch up, but they actually need other supports. So if your child's three and still in a pram, then you wouldn't be asking for a wheelchair, for example. But when the child's ready to start school, is starting to explore their world, you know, is not being pushed around, then then that's, um, I shouldn't say that actually, because some kids do benefit from a wheelchair, kids who are not ever going to walk 
and and where it's really clear. But you know, for most kids, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be asking for a wheelchair at three because you can still push them in a pram. They still might be exploring the world and learning how to how to um, walk. But there might be things that you do require. So there might be um, you know particular therapies that actually assist the child to um, come close to meeting their milestones. The child might certainly need speech pathology, whether or not that's for their um, speech and language or also for things like swallowing, um, eating, you know, those kinds of things that actually a speech pathologist can help with. Uh, you know, kids who are drooling, for example, can be helped by a speech pathologist to control that. So they certainly may need a speech pathologist. They may need an occupational therapist to actually help them to meet their milestones. So thinking about those therapies, um, but also other things that you might need. So whether or not as a family, you need some family support or some psychological help to actually come to terms with the diagnosis. Those sorts of things are really important. You don't have to do your plan as such, but you need to have thought about what is it about my child's diagnosis and the things that I need to assist my child? Um, what is it that I, that I actually need in my life that's going to help? And so if you go in thinking about those things, then the planner, so the person from the early childhood partner, is really skilled in being able to work through with you what that's going to look like in a plan. And is the plan what the NDIS supports in terms of finances? No, the plan will be much broader than that. Uh, Certainly finances, of course, the NDIS is a funding scheme. And so that's a critical part of it is actually knowing how much you're going to be provided to get that plan into place. But the plan will actually you know, talk through what are the informal supports. So, you know, do you have um, your own mum who's helping out? Do you have neighbours that um, that you might be able to turn to? Do you go to a playgroup or a preschool that's actually helping? So those things wouldn't, wouldn't be included as a financial part of the plan, but would t- colour the whole picture of what your plan looks like. And the NDIS funding only kicks in about the things that you have to pay for. So if you're going to need therapy support beyond what you can get under Medicare, if you're going to need therapy support, if you're going to need um, you know, a support worker because if your child has such significant needs, some kids don't sleep at all and you may well need someone to come in and assist um, while you have a sleep. You know, that's that sort of thing. Those are the things that the NDIS will fund, but your plan is really about how are you going to help your child meet the next milestones? You mentioned at the top that there were a few hiccups that might have confused parents and um, you said it was definitely worth the effort of applying to get this support. What kind of impact have you seen on families for the NDIS as it currently stands in its early day, early years, really? It's just um, something new for us mm. in a way. Mm. What kind of impact have you seen? The impact has been enormous. And I guess that it's really important to remember that um, whilst you know there there have been in fact recently long waiting lists for early childhood partners that's improving but there have been and that's part of the the angst I suppose that people when they need early intervention they need it now you know and if a child's three things change really quickly so you actually need the quicker um, response the quicker the response the better the outcome but I've certainly seen for many many people uh, we, we need to remember that the old system was described by the Productivity Commission as unfair and underfunded and that some people 
were getting a good deal. If you were lucky to get your child into an early intervention program, that was fabulous. But there were many, many, many people, maybe because of where they lived, maybe because of the child's diagnosis, maybe because of their social circumstances, that actually didn't get that support. And so really important to remember that now the NDIS is open to anybody around the country who is eligible for the scheme, uh, regardless of where they live, and it's tailored to that person. So if you live close by to a great early intervention program, that's fabulous. It's great that you get in there. It's great that's going to really uh, give your child a head start in life. If you live on a remote farm somewhere, you don't have transport to get anywhere, there isn't an early intervention program within Kui of your house, then you can still get an NDIS package that's tailored around your child's needs. It may well be that you know a, a therapist can come and visit or um, you can have some sessions with a therapist and then some Skype sessions, some follow-up sessions via Skype or via phone. There's a whole lot of ways that those things can be achieved now that in the past wouldn't have been possible because you really had to live close, you had to have access and the right things in place. For adults, it's made an incredible difference in that in the past, it depended on which state you lived in as to whether or not you got a decent service. So in New South Wales, we were pretty lucky. If you lived in the Northern Territory, you might get absolutely nothing and various grades in between. But in New South Wales... The services were pitched towards mainly people with intellectual disability. Over the last 10 years, there's been much more focus on on people with autism. Uh, But if you had, for example, a psychosocial disability, you might get some support through the mental health system. But for your daily life, there was nothing. And so now people with regardless of their disability, whether they have late onset disability like MS or motor neurone disease, they can access the NDIS. Whereas in the past, they had to go into aged care. Even if they were 30, they would still access the aged care system. So it's made a huge difference to ordinary people in their lives being able to tailor the support to the things that they need when they need it and where they need it. That's such a good place to end on. Joanne, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Joanne Hewitt, Executive Director of Disability for the Benevolent Society. To access more information about services like the Benevolent Society and how they can assist you, just search NDIS on the Kindling website. That's kindling.com.au.